Well, good morning. For those I haven't yet had the opportunity to meet, I hope to remedy that soon. My name is Aaron Campbell, and I am one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace Church, albeit only for the last two and a half weeks. And my family and I are looking forward to getting to know all of you much better in the coming days. We are looking forward, hopefully in the next month to two, to getting around to each of the care groups just so we can have some uh, more get-to-know-you time. And hopefully we can do much more than that on a personal level. We, we did just want to say thank you uh, for your welcome of us. Each time that we've been here, we've certainly felt that in your interactions, as well as the many folks who were there the day we moved in just to help carry the load for us and the many families that have provided meals for us over these last couple of weeks. We are grateful. We um, have already felt and appreciated your love, and we just want to say thanks. Also, my wife would love to let the ladies know if, if you left a dish with us in delivering a meal in the back of our van this afternoon. They'll all be there. We'd love to return those. Uh, as, as Sam mentioned, actually wasn't scheduled to speak this morning. Actually, uh, Matt was kind enough to give me till Memorial Day weekend when he and Sam were going to be at the next conference just to allow me to ease in. Then I got this call Friday night after putting our youngest daughter to bed mentioning that Matt was, and it was Matt on the phone, telling me <laughs> that he was going in for an emergency appendectomy. He wasn't sure if he would make it Sunday morning. <laughs> like, Matt, you better not make it Sunday. Everything went very well with the procedure, well enough for him to actually come home late that night, which is really remarkable. Um, and he is at home, talked to him this morning, recovering as Sam mentioned, wishing he could be here. This is very challenging for him, uh, but it's also good for him. <laughs> um, we're grateful for how he's doing, but please continue to pray for him. Um, keep him in your prayers this week, that it will be a quick recovery. So on short notice, I, my prayer for you this morning is that something I have to say is understandable and helpful. Well, those of you who know a little bit about our story prior to coming to Greenville, um, a year and a half ago, I, I stepped off of the staff voluntarily, volunteered to come off of staff in Sovereign Grace Church in Richmond, Virginia, because of our struggling church finances. And that began really a season of, of our family asking the Lord, what, what's next? Where would you have us to go? What would you have us to do? Still feeling a call to pastor. But um, because we were stepping off of need there, weren't aware of what would be next for us. Early in that season of not knowing what was next, my wife sent me the following devotional from Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. It was one that had been a particular encouragement to her over the years as she suffered with back pain. And it was one that became a regular meditation for me over this past year. Mr. Spurgeon 
quotes Psalm 47.4. He shall choose our inheritance for us. And then he writes, Believer, if your inheritance be a lowly one, you should be satisfied with your earthly portion. For you may rest assured that it is the fittest for you. Unerring wisdom ordained your lot and selected for you the safest and best condition. A ship of large tonnage is to be brought up the river. Now, in one part of the stream, there is a sandbank. Should someone ask, why does the captain steer through the deep part of the channel and deviate so much from a straight line? His answer would be, because I should not get my vessel into harbor at all if I did not keep to the deep channel. So it may be that you would run aground and suffer shipwreck if your divine captain did not steer you into the depths of affliction where waves of trouble follow each other in quick succession. He continues, some plants die if they have too much sunshine. It may be that you are planted where you get but little. Friend, you are put there by the loving husbandman. Because only in that situation will you bring forth fruit unto perfection. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, Divine love would have put you there. You are put by the loving husbandman, the place where you are at, because only in that situation will you bring forth fruit unto perfection. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. I don't know about you, but pruning as just a general concept is one that, well, to me was always a bit anti-intuitive. You want something to grow, so you cut it back. You want it to bear more fruit, so you trim the branches. You want a nicer and fuller look, so sometimes you'll cut it off really far back. I'm no horticulturalist. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't add up in my mind. I don't understand how it works, but it's also undeniable that it's the way that God has ordered his creation, that it does work this way, and that it's the case both in agriculture and the way that God leads his children. My wife had a purpose in sending me that devotional. She wanted me to remember the truth that there is purpose in the plan of God, even when we can't see or understand it. There is precision in the pruner's shears. 
even in the presence of pain, waiting time isn't wasted time. Pruning produces fruitfulness. Now, we're looking, continuing our study of Genesis. When Moses penned this particular portion of Genesis for the nation of Israel, likely while they were still in their captivity, I imagine his intent was much like the one that Colleen hoped her note would have with me. Yes, things may seem hard right now, but you're not forgotten. God has a purpose. The pain of the pruning shears is not the end of the story. Now Joseph's story is about to turn a corner. Good things are finally going to start happening to the point that he will say, God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. And he's going to say, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The good news for us this morning is that 4,000 years haven't changed the relevance of the truths that we find revealed here. God still leads his children through valleys of affliction and sorrow. I don't know who is going through what that is particularly challenging this morning. But I am certain in a room this size, there's more than enough trouble to go around. There's enough pain and heartache. And even for those that you may be on the mountaintop experience side of your, your walk with God right now. It's only a matter of time till you too can relate to hardship and trial. D.A. Carson stated, all you have to do to experience suffering is live long enough. Relational angst, physical suffering, fear of the future, troubled marriages, rebellious children, suffering loved ones, unfulfilled employment, unfulfilling employment, debt, infertility, that old familiar sin that just keeps beating you down, the consequences of poor decisions made from your past, being a Cowboys fan. <laughs> Sorry, that, that was just to see if you were listening. It's really no different than the one before, poor, poor decisions. The truth is, much of life is just plain hard. That doesn't mean that it's pointless, though, or that God has forgotten. What God makes clear in passages like Genesis 41 is that even through the pain, pruning produces fruitfulness. So, Let's look at the last words we read last week in chapter 40. Yet, we're told, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now before we, we start chapter 41, just put yourself for a moment in, in Joseph's shoes. What? A horrible feeling. 
he's gone through already nearly a dozen years since the time that he was sold into slavery by his brothers. Now finding himself in prison unjustly. And now he's been forgotten again. Do you think the temptation was there for him to again perhaps wonder if he had been forgotten by God himself? And how about the first audience that received this, the nation of Israel in bondage for 400 years? Certainly, oh, there was probably much more than just the temptation to believe that they were forgotten by their God. How about us? Do we ever have occasion to wonder in the midst of our circumstances and challenges whether we too have been forgotten, overlooked, abandoned by God? No doubt there are those here this morning to some degree you would express that as even now where you're at. I pray Joseph's experience, his testimony will be helpful. 41.1, after two whole years. Not about two years, not almost two years. So it's very clear Joseph is the one who had to tell this story at one point. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. And they fed in the reed grass, and behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were, stand, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. We're going to pause here. This is a rather lengthy chapter. We're going to get through it all, but we're just going to stop and I'm going to comment as we go. One of the first things I notice is this idea of attractive and plump going together, that's something that gives a guy like me hope that maybe there's places like Egypt. Sadly, I, I'm afraid it's just talking about their view of cows. But Pharaoh has these two dreams. And to say he's unsettled would be an understatement. Egypt had a number of gods, and Pharaoh himself would have been considered a god. So it might not have surprised him, it might not have been alarming that he was receiving what seemed like a message through this dream. But it definitely was worrisome that he couldn't discern their meaning. 
and neither could any of the wise men or magicians. And they're doing a great job over there. (laughs) Then, verse 9, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When, When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When, he, when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. I don't know if you've ever watched one of these kind of movies or not, but especially like in the... uh, like the heist films, there, there's always someone that's done some time in prison and, and they always know a guy. You know, Frankie Fingers or something like that. There's this connection that they're always, because it achieves their goal, happy to bring up that guy that they knew from their time in the slammer who can help them out in their present predicament. This really isn't one of those times. The chief cupbearer in no way wanted to remind Pharaoh of his offenses that made Pharaoh really angry, angry enough to throw him into prison, and angry enough for the chief baker to have his head cut off. There's nothing within the chief cupbearer that wants to bring up this situation again. And you notice how delicate he is. First just saying, I I remember my offenses. Wanting him to know, first and foremost, again, I'm really sorry. And I think it's an indication of how desperate Pharaoh was for some interpretation, some answer to his dreams that he was even, that the cupbearer was even willing to bring up this past incident. But bring up this incident he does. And Pharaoh is desperate enough in his situation to listen. Verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. And they quickly brought him out of the pit. And right there, out of the pit, a pretty clear statement regarding what Joseph's life is like in his continued incarceration and why he's feeling every bit of the two years since the cupbearer has left. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. As a Hebrew, Joseph likely had a long beard. That was the custom what the Hebrews would have worn. He would have been wearing the clothes of a slave. Egyptians often shaved not only their face, but their entire heads. 
And in Pharaoh's court, they would have had the finest dress, the finest garments. So Joseph was cleaned up and dressed up. He was Egyptianized a bit as well before being brought in to Pharaoh. And we read in verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Right now, Pharaoh is sizing Joseph up. Who are you? I myself am a god. What power do you possess? Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. One commentator writes, Observe carefully that he told Pharaoh, who himself was considered to be God incarnate, that God, Ha Elohim, the God, would explain his dream. Thus, to Pharaoh's face, Joseph asserted that his God was superior to and sovereign over the gods of Egypt. Thirteen years earlier, a 17-year-old Joseph was brashly boasting to his family that they would one day bow down to him. And now, Joseph, standing before the most powerful man in the then-known world, has his confidence solely in God alone, whatever the outcome. God has been at work in Joseph's life. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them. For they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. No one from all of our gods. No one from our sorcerers or magicians or all the wisdom of Egypt. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty, blighted, seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God 
has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow. For it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. Now the interpretation that Joseph gave announced to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt that the one true God controlled their existence. Another commentator writes that the future in, in, in Egypt does not depend upon Pharaoh. He does not get to decide. In fact, Pharaoh is irrelevant and marginal to the future of the kingdom. Joseph has calmly announced to the Lord of Egypt that the future is out of his hands. In Genesis 41, it is clear that Pharaoh can cause no future, nor can he resist the future that God will bring. And so, through Joseph, we see the reality upon which all of biblical history rests. Kings do not make history. Rather, God uses kings to effect his story. God is the one that is sovereign over all. He is the one that is in control of every ruler and kingdom, from the lowest slave to the king and the royal family in their palace. And they are helpless to stop or thwart his plans in the least. Armed with that knowledge, Joseph continues, Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities. And let them keep it. That the food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. How audacious was this? He was just brought out of the pit and cleaned up. As a slave, not only a slave, but a prisoner, brought before Pharaoh, who has sovereign rule in Egypt. He's asked to interpret a dream, and, and he does so without hesitation, with confidence that God has indeed interpreted for him. But he doesn't just stop at the interpretation. This wasn't just a don't speak unless spoken to 
reading in his mind, he goes on to say, not only is that the interpretation, but this is what you should do about it. Pharaoh, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Pharaoh sees clearly there is something different about this man, different than all the magicians, different than all the wise men, all the gods that we have at our disposal that have been helpless in this situation to explain what my dream means. This young man not only has told me its meaning, but there is wisdom there on what to do. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. This is truly remarkable. I don't know if we have a category for what's going on. Because Pharaoh is not like today's figurehead kings or monarchs. This isn't like a presidency where there are checks and balances or a prime minister. He has absolute power in his kingdom. Someone makes him angry, they get thrown in the prison. Or he'll take their head off. And no one says a word about it. He has absolute right. He's thought to be a God himself. And here, he is turning over the keys of the kingdom to a foreign slave that was brought out of the pit an hour ago. We don't have categories for what's going on. The turn of events in Joseph's life in this moment those 13 years of preparation were now starting to pay huge dividends. Through Joseph, God was advertising and asserting himself in Egypt. Pharaoh was a mere man the God of Israel, the only true God, was on display in Egypt. Joseph was now being placed in the role that God had been cultivating and pruning him for all these years. And because Joseph's character had been tested and refined through his trials and hardships, he was... Well, he was now ready. He was in a place to point kings and nations to Yahweh. Verse 41. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. 
And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he sent him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath-Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Here we see Pharaoh doing everything in his power to signify his favor on Joseph. To say that these, these dreams that he had 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 troubled him, had arrested his attention, what an understatement. They gripped him so much that this is his response to the person who comes and is provided by God to show him what God is saying. And so everything he can do to show his favor on Joseph, his own ring off of his finger, the symbol of his edicts and power, his, his clothes, his ride. Then Pharaoh gave Joseph the height of Egyptian integration by renaming him an Egyptian name and giving him a wife of nobility. This was the same line that the pharaohs sometimes selected their own wives from. From pit to palace, Joseph had reached the top in mere moments. How would the tests of affluence and power challenge Joseph? Well, God had already been preparing him. He had been preparing him in his father's house and then to Potiphar's in chains and in the pit so that now he was ready to face the dangers and the challenges of the palace. Verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh the king. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And this really is the high point of this chapter because we, we get insight into how Joseph is processing all that's happening to him, all that's really taken place in his life up to this point. God has made me forget all my hardship, he says. 
And we've been reading along these last number of weeks, and that's quite a statement. For Joseph to now be able to turn the corner from someone who, well, the last thing we read about him was him pleading with, with others, pleading with the cupbearer to remember his plight, remember the injustices that have been done against him. When you reach the good place to where you are going, remember me. Remember my troubles. For him to be able to now say, the Lord has made me forget. He's moved on. He's turning the corner from these things, these troubles. And saying that God has brought him to a place where his difficulty is fully a thing of the past. Not only is he not looking back, but he's abundantly blessed in his present. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Surely speaks to the second birth of his son. Birth of his second son. Better way to say that. But it also encapsulates where he is at professionally as well as personally. He has been brought to a place of fruitfulness and fulfillment. And there's one other thing that in his statement here is, is revealing. Though Joseph has been given a place of prominence by Pharaoh, as well as an Egyptian name, an Egyptian wife, daughter to the priest of one of the chief Egyptian gods, Joseph's children have Hebrew names. Not only Hebrew names, but Hebrew names that point to the blessing and the care of Yahweh. Joseph recognizes he has never been forgotten. Even in his affliction, God has been there with him. God is the one, not primarily Pharaoh, that is blessing him now. His rise to the top. Oh, Pharaoh was the agent by which it came about, but there is no question in Joseph's mind who made it happen. The same one that was with him in Potiphar's house, in the prison, is with him now. The same one that he proclaimed to be sovereign over all of Egypt, he understands as sovereign in his life, in the challenges, as well as in the blessings. Joseph no longer looked back with an eye on injustice, but now, seems, now sees that his hardships were God's path to his blessings. It was undeniable that God's painful pruning in his life was also what produced his fruitfulness. 53, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. 
for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. And this is certainly a happy chapter in Joseph's story. But the fruitfulness born from Joseph's affliction wasn't just for Joseph's sake. The whole nation of Egypt was receiving the blessing of the hard road that Joseph's life took. Even more, it says, all the earth came to Egypt. As a result of one man's suffering, all the earth was being blessed. This chapter of Joseph's story does much more than just give a happy ending. It pounds home the reality that not a moment of the waiting time is wasted time. None of our pain is pointless. No trial is without a corresponding testimony because God is over all. Because God is a faithful Redeemer, pruning produces fruitfulness. Now I realize that there could be some sitting here listening and thinking, it sounds like God just likes to make people suffer. Why would I want to follow a God like that? I'll please make no mistake, because of our sins against God, we all deserve to suffer. We all deserve to suffer forever. But Joseph's story actually foreshadows another who suffered much greater in our place so that we could be blessed forever. The cross was required before there could be an empty tomb. There was pain that God himself put himself through in order to have the victory of salvation for you and for me. Far from being a God who delights in our suffering, he stood in our place to take the eternal suffering that we deserved. Without his pain, there is no salvation. Any suffering we experience in this life is, well, it's temporary. Our suffering has meaning because of the one who suffered on our behalf. Our suffering is never the end of the story because of the one who suffered on our behalf. We have confidence, even in the midst of our suffering, because Christ's pain purchased our future. His pain purchased our hope for something beyond our suffering. His pain purchased our future glory. I also realize there could be those here this morning who, who might be tempted by a chapter like this because, well, because it has a happy ending. 
And your trials right now seem so acute. There's no end in sight. There's no signs of visible fruit. Good for Joseph. He got a job. He got a chariot. He got the girl. He got a family. All the world benefited from his pain. But I'm stuck in mine. And I don't see anything like this on the horizon. The reality is, we often don't see the fruit in the moment. In the moment of pain, that clouds our eyes, and that's the only thing that we can see. It may be true that we may not see the fruit, we may not see the reality of the coming glory in this lifetime. But that doesn't mean it's not real. It doesn't mean it's still not what he is producing. It just means that we don't get to enjoy it right now. If you were in that place where really the idea of a happy ending just seems impossible right now, can I just appeal to you to please not leave here this morning without giving someone the opportunity to pray for you. I'd be happy to pray for you. Go to your, your care group leader. Go to the person that's next to you. When we sing a song in a moment, if you need to sit down and just cry out to God, let's be honest with God. Let's be honest with each other about what we're going through, the reality of the struggles that we face. Because your pain is not the end of the story. He died for you to give you hope even in the midst of suffering that it is not without point. And there is a day coming, hard to imagine as it is now, where you will look back on what you are experiencing right now and be able to say, that was light and momentary. I understand you might not be there now, but avail yourself to the friends around you who can help lift you up before the throne, before the one who died for you, who he has placed alongside you in this journey. Let us not let our pride keep us from asking. Keep us from knocking and seeking on heaven's door. Well, friends, we have a greater revelation. This is, this is something we need to understand. We have a greater revelation than what Joseph himself had. Oh, the confidence that he had to go before Pharaoh. Friends, we have seen behind the veil. We have seen Christ crucified on our behalf. We have so much more understanding of the meaning of suffering. He just knew that God was big and in control and over it all. And he saw the redemption that God gave, but the one that we see is so much greater. We can look at heroes of the past and long for their experience in different ways. But friends, we have the Holy Spirit. We have a revelation through His Word 
that Joseph never had. He didn't have the book of Genesis even to hold on to and to recognize the promises of. So let us receive the gifts that God gives to us. Let us avail ourselves. Please don't go without taking the opportunity to have someone pray for you. Well, if the band could return. I think I'll close just by reading one more time from the quote from Spurgeon. Unerring wisdom ordained your lot and selected for you the safest and best condition. Some plants die if they have too much sunshine. It may be that you are planted where you get but little. You are put there by the loving husbandman because only in that situation will you bring forth fruit unto perfection. Remember this. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Heavenly Father, we recognize in the moment of trial, in the moment of pain, it's hard. It's hard to see anything beyond that moment. Let alone that it's your loving hand that's placed us here. And it's your loving hand that will carry us until you glorify us. Lord, would you help us to see that you indeed are over all, even this area of trial and struggle. Would you help us to see you as faithful Redeemer right now? Because you have declared by your sacrifice for all time that is who you are. So we pray that you help us to live in the reality of that truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.